Hey everyone, Tim Kay here, host of the Veterans Project podcast, founder of the Veterans Project and the Caregiver Project as well. I'm here to talk to you today about this incredible podcast we have coming up. It's a two-part series on a legend of the Marine Special Operations community who just so happened to be the first black Marine recon officer as well, Major James Capers Jr. You're not going to want to miss a single word of this podcast. Now, this podcast is accompanied by the project, so you'll be able to read along with that as well. Every single word that this man speaks is just truly that of a legend. So I want you to take the time to really ruminate on this, to really soak this in, absorb all of this material because it is special and he is one of our most legendary. Now, I would not have been able to do this podcast without this incredible organization or this project. I wouldn't have been able to do either one without this incredible organization, the Marine Reconnaissance Foundation which I have personal experiences with, and they are just an incredible organization. I am honored to have them sponsoring this podcast and project. The Marine Reconnaissance Foundation, or MRF, is committed to serving the Marine Reconnaissance community and its veterans by providing assistance to active duty, retired, and former members of the recon community. The foundation aims to provide immediate emergency and reoccurring deliberate support for the reconnaissance marines and special amphibious reconnaissance corpsmen of all generations and their families. In addition, the MRF strives to share and perpetuate the storied lineage, history, and traditions of the reconnaissance community. The MRF is a registered national nonprofit, 501c3 organization, who is able to provide annual reoccurring programs and emergency support because of the generosity of large and small businesses and patriotic citizens and their families. If you're interested in donating to the MRF, please visit their donation portal on reconfoundation.org. That's reconfoundation.org or at the link in our description via PayPal. Visit reconfoundation.org to learn more about this incredible organization and all they are doing for the Marine Recon community. There are lives so well lived that the encapsulated measure of their influence and stature is truly almost incomprehensible if we look at the scope of where they came from and where they ended up. Who rises up from the ashes of the downtrodden, the persecuted and neglected sex of our society? How would that story read? Who would that human be? You know, there was a boy from Bishopville, a son of sharecroppers, whose story seems so unlikely that many have called it a legend. But we assure you that every word is completely factual. In all actuality, the reality of the story is probably more powerful than the tale itself. A young black child grows up in those oppressed and subjugated segments of a nation that's supposedly built on the principles of freedom for all, but not living up to its foundational promises. Does that child one day become a man and rise up in passionate vitriol against the man, becoming a pinnacle of revolution and revolt? Or does he tackle those problems from a different angle? This podcast is not meant to act as a social commentary, but merely a legacy piece on one American's example of the reality of ultimate persistence against all odds. James Capers Jr. was born to be a Marine. In fact, in a 2011 speech, General Paul Lefebvre referred to him as the father of Marine Special Operations as he was inducted into the Commando Hall of Honor at MacDill Air Force Base. His courageous actions that day in Vietnam, which are once again under review for the Congressional Medal of Honor, are simply a microcosmic example of his entire life. You know, they are also indicative of a man who showed up as the prototype of what it truly means to be a special operations warrior. 
He has constantly lived with a heart of pure purpose, incessantly persevering through every single life obstacle, whether systemic or constructed by those around him to hinder his meteoric rise to the ranks of the United States Marine Corps. Where some may have seen a closed door as a roadblock, Major Capers voraciously kicked those doors down in pursuit of something greater than himself. Although the Major has been robbed by the Marine Corps time and time again in his quest for our nation's highest military honor, we all know the reality of the matter and the man. We know that this Marine has been one of our elite examples of what it truly means to be a Marine. And we are all better as a nation for him having lived to serve. Every impeded step towards success that Major Capers took in a construct built in expectancy of his failure was a step forward in the advancement of freedom for all of us. You've already said enough, though. Here he is with an education on overcoming Major James Capers Jr. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. So you mentioned that those demons kind of found a way home and you were struggling with some, some of that stuff and you weren't able to finish that degree. Those times in Vietnam were still bothering you, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. And what was that like for you? I started back at the University of Maryland, but I was kind of torn between the new academic world and the world I left behind. And a lot of what I left behind was was solemn and, and, and bitter. And I was bitter. I lost a lot of good friends there. It was hard to sit in classroom with young kids who had never seen around fighting anger, and they were complaining about the war and complaining about the conduct of American soldiers and how we were murdering children. And uh, But at a freedom of speech, First Amendment right, they were given the, the class their own opinions about the war. And I'm sitting there as a wounded warrior when I would rather have been home because I was working during the day and going to school three nights a week. And when I heard those comments... It hurt. I was an officer at this time, and some of them were racially oriented. We had a lot of riots in the streets, and at the time, Martin Luther King had been killed, and a lot of negative things were going on in the company, in the country. And to sit there night after night and hear the commentary, and I was hurt by the memories of all those bodies that I saw in battle zones around Vietnam, and the pain that I, I suffered and continue to suffer. And we still had troops bleeding in, in war zones in Vietnam. There were days when I didn't want to go back to school. I, I think I got relatively good grades because the teacher sensed that there was something wrong. You know, you could probably could do better, but there's something wrong here. Do you need help? You know, I'm here to help you. And, and I'm just as offended as you are by some of the comments that's made in these freewheeling classes when we're talking about current events and rights and wrongs and uh, the Southern era of slaves and why we fought the Civil War. And, and she was telling me they got First Amendment rights. They can talk about this in class, we're here to educate each other. Didn't have that many African-Americans in the class, but myself and a few others, she wanted the white students to talk like they were black. 
Oh, wow. Now, you are black now, and you speak like you were black. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was, it, their voices automatically went up. They were deeper because they assume that's what, how we sound. Wow. Then they, then they asked the white, I'm sorry, the black guys to talk like they were white. So it was an education uh, for ourselves. And I don't know what I got out of that, but wow. uh, it was a difference in understanding. And it made us think we can all be friends no matter what we sound like if your language is good. That's how we determine the value of a human being, what he's learned, and uh, not just how he speaks or what he sounds like or what you think he may sound like. I learned a lot from that class, and I began to become a little bit more tolerant. As a result of that, I started something called Capers and Company. It was a USO show. And I put together a show from Marine Barracks Fort Meade where I was stationed. And I was going to University of Maryland as a part of the uh, uh, University of Maryland outreach program. And an instructor was, was from University of Maryland, but it was taught on a Fort Meade base. Wow. The Army paid, I think, 75% of the cost. And we got some books and things like that. But you had to do the work. And you had to show up on time. And you had to be there three, time, three nights a week. I did the best I could until I got orders to go to Europe. And obviously, there's no time in Europe. Uh, but aboard ship, we had 3,000 Marines and sailors aboard that ship aircraft carrier, USS Wasp, that fought World War II. And I was in charge of security aboard that ship. I was an officer by this time. A lot of, a lot of racial problems on the ship. We went across the Atlantic and uh, spent a year in Europe. And I had some other missions I had to do while I was over there. We had some, uh, some riots aboard the ship. We had this time in the Marine Corps or in the Navy, too. A lot of African-Americans want to wear the hair in a certain style called an Afro. Mm. A lot of the officers wouldn't go allow that. This is what the regulation states, and this is where it's going to be. And because of that, we had a lot of uh, intolerance. So I started a program called a firing line. And every Sunday at 1 o'clock, I got everybody down in an empty compartment. Everybody wanted to come. And we talked about racial tolerance and why we're going to be on this ship for a year. We need to learn to get together. I talked to Admiral and get me a bunch of books called From Slavery to Freedom. Mm. And we talked about the history of uh, the African-American experience in this country and, you know, slavery and the Civil War. And I taught those programs. And each Sunday, we got more and more there to, to hear the story of the African-American experience. A lot of the white kids, sometimes we had more white kids than we had black kids. Wow. And, wow. And a lot of good questions. A lot of became good friends. One of the black kids became one of my assistant instructors because we needed to do something. Yeah. We needed to figure out how we're going to stay together for a year on this aircraft carrier. And a lot of the other ships were having the same problems. Wow. And I was able to reach these kids, and they enjoyed coming down there to my firing line. Uh, when my tour was over, the Admiral gave me a Navy Commendation Medal or something like that. Wow. And the whole ship turned out, when I walked down the plank, they all came out to salute me. <laughs> because, you know, it was an important lesson all of us learned how to live together. And the war was still going on now. Mm. Uh, this was 1971, 72. All the officers ate in something called the ward room. And the troops had their own mess hall. But below the officer's mess, the wardroom, 
lived a group of Filipinos, and they were recruited to come to the States as cooks and slaves and servants. They signed a contract, didn't have to do the Navy thing. They would just prepare food for the officers, and they lived below the mess deck. And one afternoon, a young Filipino kid was in there, and he dropped a plate. And one lieutenant who was one of our pilots, worst thing he'd ever seen. And he called the Filipino a disparaging word. Mm. And he went over and grabbed this kid. And, uh, of course, the kid's shaking. Said, what are you doing? This is the officer. And I said, I went over, whoa, you don't treat this guy like that. He made a mistake. You'll clean it up. You need to let this guy alone. I was a second. I was a lieutenant, too, but I was a second lieutenant. So he was a senior to me. But he wasn't singing to me in right and wrong. Mm. You, you got to make a stand. You're not going to bounce this kid along because, you know, uh, you're white and he's brown. Mm. I had a meeting with the Filipinos. I went down to the compartment where they all slept and ate. They didn't associate with the uh, white sailors and black sailors on the ship because they were just servants. And a lot of them didn't speak English. And so I went down there and I spent the evening with them. And wow. I talked to them, and I made an apology to them for what this white officer said. And I said, you know, I'm sorry for what happened. You guys are heroes. Your forefathers fought with MacArthur in World War II. Yeah. When MacArthur came back to the Philippines, he came back because he had fell in love with the Filipino people. Yeah. When the Japanese took over, the Filipinos didn't give up. They fought in the hills. Yeah. They fought in the hills. A remarkable group of people. As a matter of fact, the government paid them, paid some of the Filipino uh, soldiers who fought uh, after MacArthur went to the uh, went to Australia. I guess it was. They found these guys who kept the fight going, and gave them awards and and monies because they were one of our greatest allies. Right. And unfortunately, the Japanese came in, and we all know about the 500 uh, mile march. They took the Filipinos and. I guess it's like a tear tra uh, trail of tears, like the Indians in you know in the 18th century. Yeah. They didn't surrender, but when MacArthur left General Stillwell in charge, then eventually they had to surrender because there was, they had nothing to fight with. MacArthur said he's going to return, and he did come back. But a lot of the uh, soldiers that were captured by the Japanese, it was a, a, a tragedy when they liberated the uh, POWs camp. Camp, they saw how brutal the Japanese people could be. But yeah. I those... did a project on a Bataan Death March veteran. Oh, really? The guy who'd been in the camp. Oh, camp. okay. Yeah, so he he was able to tell me about his yeah. uh, brother dying in his arms, starving to yeah, death. Yeah, Seen some horrible things in three Very and a half years. Very true stories. Yeah. But those days are in the past. And, well, that's uh, what I was telling yeah. those young Filipino cooks and bakers there that you've got a glorious past. Yeah. And then shortly after that, they had a big uh, volcano erupt. And these people who were in our Navy now did not hear about their their families. They didn't get any word on whether they lived or died. And when I went down there to talk to them, they asked me if I could find out about their families. Don't know who I went to. And they said, well, you got to go through the Red Cross. Well, let's do that. And because of that, we started getting information or letters in about their families, but I think they were grateful for the attempt. They were sending money back to the Philippines, you know, to help their families out. Right. They were sending half their pay, pretty much like I did when I joined the Marines. I was sending half my pay back to my folks. Wow. I did that until I got married. Right. Three years later.
Wow. You talked a little bit about the, an initiative you had called the uh, Capers. Yeah, the, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, yes. It was the... Uh, we got to help each other out here. Yeah. <laughs> Army <laughs> and Marines working together. Yeah, that's good. We do that good. Yes, sir. Except when I was a second lieutenant and they gave me a hard time. <laughs> you <laughs> never forget that. No, no, no. Those are the Green Berets, right? Yeah, they always give me a hard time. <laughs> I go from a senior staff sergeant to a... Uh, a brown bar. <laughs> they yeah. just they just wanted to recognize they, your new they, status. <laughs> yeah, they just give me a hard time. Here comes the rookie. You, know. <laughs> can't was spell, you can't spell lost without no. LT. <laughs> <laughs> they gave me a hard time, but they, yeah. they took care of me, though. Yeah, they really cared about you. It was teasing from caring. Yeah, they used yeah. to give me uh, jungle utilities because we went through a lot of that stuff there. The, tore up in the jungles. and Right. And uh, whatever they had, they would share with me. Did you have the old jungle boots? We had the, we had got jungle boots from mm, them. Nice. They gave us a lot of supplies because they got a lot of stuff in. They had warehouses full of that, you know, stuff yeah. they they needed it. But they figured, well, Marines are our brothers. We're all fighting together. Right. They would give me pallets load of uh, utilities, jungle boots, and uh, unfortunately, one day a group of my well-meaning troops went over and raided their armory. Oh, no. And, uh, of course, <laughs> I, I found out about that. And, uh, you know, they told me, we know that you guys did it. We know you guys did it. So just, so I got the weapons and took them back to the uh, Special Forces, the Green Berets. <laughs> and they had a, a group of people called well, Montagnards. Oh, yeah, yeah, the indigenous yeah, tribal yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, Montagnards. I have one of those bracelets that one of my oh, buddies really? gave me. Okay. Yeah, from the Montagnards. They had a reunion yeah. in North Carolina at Bragg. A lot of them lived in that area. Right. Yeah. They gave me one of their uh, bracelets yeah. since I had done a story on a Green Beret who'd worked yeah. with them. Well, I knew those guys pretty well, and uh, they would run patrols against the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. They were good soldiers, mm -hmm. and the Green Berets would equip them and give them basic training and things of that nature. And I was there for that. Sometime I see them coming in from patrols, bringing their dead and wounded in. Sometime they were bringing them in by overland, and sometime choppers would land and bring them in. But they were hard fighters. Mm. The Montagnards were was no joke. I've heard great things about yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, they were. They, they, they were yeah. one of the tribes that the Green Berets could always depend right. on. Right, they were yeah. very dependable troops, and and a lot of them come to the states after the war and was living in some place in northern uh, uh, North Carolina. Yeah, I think the army uh, sponsored that. The Green Berets had fought with these guys. Say, hey, we're not going to leave them here. No, you know they brought them home. It was a good thing that they did. You know, and, yeah. and I appreciated that. We never had that experience. The army pretty much handled the Martin Yards, uh, but it was a good program because there were days when even guys like me, when I run across these villages and I saw the results of what the VC had done, they would uh, get the chief. Hang him up, rip him down his guts, mm. and let the pigs eat his his entrails. Wow! Yeah, they would rape the women, recruit the young men, or just take them off, take all the rice, and then they would go off into the jungles and celebrate. We could track them, mm. uh, and we tracked them. We caught them off guard, and we I guess assassination is probably the best word to use. Mm. But we caught them in their little hideouts, and they still had cooking pots they were cooking and celebrating cooking the stuff they got from these villages we uh took them out we had our dog with us we smelled the camp mm. and some of these missions we ran was at night we could find them my dog could track them 
oh, we could track them. Wow. Unfortunately, the, the way we tracked them is that when they relieved themselves on the trails, we could pick this up and squeeze it hmm. and realize how old it was. Wow. And we'd know how long they were gone. And this is stuff when we became animals, we became just like the jungle. Yeah. We were camouflaged and we ate one meal a day. Did they teach you this stuff in jungle warfare school or did you learn this I when learned you were this. over there? I learned this. Okay. I picked it up. Yeah. I knew how to do this stuff, you know, I, because I was had a scent for hmm. not getting revenge, but finding those guys who have done such brutal things to, to women and children. And uh, there were days when I went in and blew up their boats, did what I needed to do. Right. How they were you... scared of us. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, I had a, um, an old UDT guy tell me that, you know, they said they owned the night. He said, BS, yeah. we own the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could see you guys owning the night. We, 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 we moved a lot at night and we did some good work at night. We called an artillery a whole bit. So we, we had that whole experience. Depends on what area we're working in. We were at Quezon. We fought on the lines. Mm. We fought hand-to-hand and uh, close combat. And we didn't starve there, but we didn't get fed very much. No. When the rains came, uh, the monsoon, and we couldn't get in air support. Uh, we couldn't get blood plasma in. We couldn't get morphine in. We couldn't get our dead and wounded out. So it was a tough time. We had to kind of hang on. At night, the rockets came, you know, and we... Figured that the guys could have held on in Guadalcanal. So we are, we're students of history. The Marine Corps is one old historical organization. Yes. And we live from one generation to the other. You know, we, we still carry the same uh, globe and anchor. Yeah. Uh, you guys are great at teaching that history yeah, to the younger and, Marines. Right. And, and, and I was in the Marine Corps when a lot of guys were still alive from Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima. And I heard those guys talk and tell their stories. And so when it looked like, when Hanoi Hannah said we couldn't hold, we couldn't hold Quezon, I told my guys we can. I'd get my troops in a little small group, and I would tell them, you know, you're all volunteers. Mm. You're all recon Marines. We don't have a lot here, but if anybody wants to leave, you let me know. And one guy says, I want to stay, sir, but what about you? You're a lieutenant now. I said, it's a good question. I got a wife and I got a son back home. But I'll stay here with you. I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. Mm. Where am I going? I'm only a second lieutenant. But I'll be with you. When they come, I'll fight with you. Wow. And, you know, this was a little something you talk about. But I want the guys to know that, you know, because I'm an officer now, I'm not going to the rear. You know, I I got transferred once uh, when a major came in. And I wrote about that in my book. Chopper went down out in enemy uh, territory. So I mounted a patrol with army guys. There was an army group of guys there <laughs> with me and great guys. There was a E-7 in charge of the guys. They had a M-40 or whatever it was, uh, and they had these machine guns mounted on it. And uh, he, I don't know how he got there. I had no idea who he was, and but he was there with me at Quezon. Oh, wow. Uh. And they had it was on tracks. It was a track 40 or whatever. I don't remember what the army called this thing. Yeah. But he was listening to me one day, and when the choppers – went down in enemy territory and I was bound in a patrol to go out and get the major who was on this air, aircraft. I guess in the Marine Corps, we called him a gunny, but he was a sergeant first class. Right. 
And he came up to me and said, Lieutenant, uh, you need some help? I said, Gunny, where the hell did you come from? He said, I got my army guys here. They're all, all black guys. Oh, yeah. I have no idea where they come from. And he said, I've got this these quad 40s here. I said, I kept calling him Gunny because he had stripes <laughs> like Gunny. I said, Gunny, I'll take all the help I can get. He said, I'll go out and I'll bring your troops back. I went down to the command bunker, back bunker and we sent this whole rescue squad out. And we opened up the big gates. Down the road they went at night. And I went to the command bunker, started briefing my guys. And I was only second lieutenant. We had some senior guys, Marine captains who were senior to me, but a lot of them was in supply and other groups like that. Mm. And I'm the combat guy. And my guys were fighting outside the gates, fighting on the lines. And so uh, I took over the radio and uh, let my team know that, uh, you know, where to go and this and that. They had radios with them. And the gunny had his army guys out there, about, about 10 of them, yeah. and loaded on this track 40 or whatever this thing was. Nice-looking vehicle. But they went down the road and come back with the, the major and all of his troops. Wow. Come riding into the base there. We slammed the gates closed. The major came over to me and thanked me for uh, for the rescue. We put his troops. I thanked the army guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you're, you're Marines now, you know. So, yeah, I always, always wanted to be a Marine, so you always want to be a Marine. So you, That's you, one of the greatest you, uh, commendations you, you can give us, right? Adopt you, us into the Marine Corps. Really, <laughs> That's what you, you always do. You, you helped us out tonight. You, 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 you're Marines tonight. And I, I put them over with my guys. They all, uh, they had a few beers there in case I don't know where they got it from. Probably stole it from somewhere. They had a village out in town there. Where the Army Special Forces had at Lang Bay. Okay. Yeah, Lang Bay is another story. They lost that base, unfortunately. Oh wow. Got go go overran. Jeez. Did a great story. They did a documentary on Lang Bay. Wow. Those guys. Uh, Lieutenant Duffy was there. I knew him. He got killed. Okay. Special Forces guy, young guy. Wow. But uh, they fought to the last. Wow. Fought to the last. They weren't too far from Quezon. Mm. And uh, I had gone to Lang Bay, you know, to talk to Duffy and those guys down there. I don't know if Duffy was still there or not. Hmm. But but at any rate, the major asked me, uh, who the hell are you? Hmm. And I says, I'm Lieutenant Caper, sir. He said, where'd you come from? I said, well, I come from the States with 3rd Force Recon. This was in uh, 67 now. This was in March of 67. And he said, uh, I never heard of you. I said, yes, sir. I was a staff sergeant and I got a commission last year. He said, I still never heard of you. What are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here with my the CO of my detachment had taken leave at that time for some reason. I don't know the details on that, but uh, he didn't turn out very well. Uh-oh. But I was in charge there, and I brought the major in, put him in to where the captain's quarters was. And I had a little hooch over not too far from that. But he called me in, and uh, he was there to make an assessment to see if we thought Quezon could hold because the news they was getting wasn't very good. You know, the NVA was closing in. We had a stranglehold on us, and the weather was bad. And so he was making his trip to see whether we ought to try to get out of there. Uh, I tell him, sir, Marines don't don't evacuate, you know. <laughs> we, and I just, not what we're thinking. It's one thing Marines aren't very good at, no, evacuating. Really. <laughs> and I said, what the hell were you thinking? I said, well, we got some supplies in. We can hold this base. Yeah. He said, how the hell are you going to hold it? You got two divisions. You're surrounded, and uh, the weather is bad. If you got supplies there, Lieutenant, how the hell are you going to hold this base? So we'll figure out a way. You know, we'll figure out a way. And then we talked that night, and 
and he thanked me for the rescue. I went back to my hooch, and he called me back over, and he said, sit down, Lieutenant. I said, all right, I'm okay. I prefer to stand. He said, sit down, Lieutenant. So I sat down. He said, I've been back and uh, radioed back to Dong Ha, uh, my headquarters, and uh, we're pulling you out. I want you to be prepared to evacuate this base tomorrow when I pull my troops out. We're going back to Dong Ha, and I want you to be prepared to go with you. I said, uh, Major, uh, are you pulling the detachment out? He said, no, I'm pulling you out. Hmm. You're going to go back and going to be, be at Dong Ha. And he'd asked me, well, how long had you been with the company? I said, I came over with him in 66 as a staff sergeant, but I got a commission. I'm here to the duration. He said, your duration ends tomorrow. You're going back to Dong Ha with me, and you're going to be my S4 supply or something. There's nothing wrong with that, but. One of those no. jobs you never wanted to do. No, no, no. I, wa- <laughs> I, wa- I wasn't leaving Quezon. I, and uh, I told him, yes, sir. And I left, went back. Yerman come over, sat down on my rack. And he said, let me tell you what happened. So I bet you got relieved. So how'd you know that? He said, well, it's about that time. We, we thought that once you got a commission, they're going to pull you out. Because usually officers only spend six months in the field. They give you six months, they pull you out and give you another job. And uh, that wasn't my deal. When I, when I became an officer, that wasn't my deal. Mm. I was there to, to command my troops. When O'Donnell got killed and everything else went bad, I was there to bring as many of my guys home. So I told Yerman, don't worry about me, I'll be okay. The next morning, when the C-130 came in, I walked up to the airstrip there at Dung Ha, I'm sorry, at Quezon, with the major. He had all his guys ready to go. I'm standing there with the major. His guys are getting on. He said, Lieutenant, where's your gear? I said, sir, I don't have any gear. He said, well, you need to carry your gear to Dung Ha. There's still a war going on, as if I, if I didn't know that. <laughs> and I said, sir, I, uh, I'm not going to Dung Ha. He said, I gave you a direct order to be ready to go to Dung Ha. Now, you go get your gear and get on this aircraft. I said, Major, I'm not going. When you, tell, you evacuate my troops, then I'll go. I don't go without my troops. He said, damn it, Lieutenant. Can't you see what's going on out there? You're not going to survive this. Uh, in my opinion, I don't think Quezon can hold on to it. I'm giving you a chance to live. You you take my hand. Just take my hand and get on this helicopter or this aircraft. I'll send back and get your gear. I saluted him, turned around, and walked away. Wow. Walked away. I see what you were saying about not winning popularity contests. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm a second lieutenant. If I'm going to die... Uh, Let me doubt my troops. Wow. I believe that. Yeah. If I'm going to die, I'm going to right die right here with Quezon. Yeah. After I told my guys about Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima, I'm not going to take a helicopter out here because I was lucky enough to get a commission. Mm. I'm staying here. Right. And years later, believe it or not, I saw this major. He was lieutenant colonel. And my wife, I had gotten out, out of the hospital on leave. And my wife and I were driving down the countryside on Maryland one Sunday afternoon. And we saw this little yellow uh, Volkswagen was beeping. So we pulled over. It was the major. He said, Lieutenant Capers, I heard you were dead. I heard you got, I said, no, sir, I survived, survived case on. Then he said, so good to see you. He said, I live a few miles down the road. Why don't you come down and visit, meet, meet my wife and my daughter. So we drove down. He entertained us, and he told stories about him threatening to court-martial me for not getting on this this, uh, C-130. Wow. And Dottie was sitting there listening, and he says, I don't see how in the hell they survived it. But it wasn't quite as bad as it was 
next year in 68. See, this was 67. And they really hit them hard in 68, but I was home in the hospital in 68. The major, I guess, colonel at that time, started telling the story about how he ordered me to leave and I wouldn't leave. My wife was looking at me because I wrote all those letters to say, I'll do what I can to come home and, you know, I'm going to survive and I'll, I'm, I love you and nothing in the world is going to stop me from coming home. But yet he's telling her that I had a chance to leave and wouldn't leave. So when all this is over, you know, I thank the colonel and we had a 13-year-old daughter. Uh, his wife was very gracious. We're going home now. And my wife hadn't said a word to me. Hadn't said a word to me. I said, babe, is there anything wrong? She said, yeah. I said, what's wrong, sweetheart? Sister, you told me that nothing in your letters, you told me that you would do anything in the world to come home to us. And now I find out that you had a chance to come home. You were transferred to a safer zone and you stayed with your troops. She said, didn't I mean that much to you? I said, sweetheart, no, not going to lie to you. You didn't mean that much to me. And World War III started. <laughs> oh, no. uh, she said, you were lying to me in all those letters. I said, no, I wasn't lying. I love you. But at that time, uh, I was doing the right thing. I couldn't leave my men. I, I promised them. She said, but you promised us too. Uh, we stood before Reverend Jesse, who was the guy who married us. Mm. And now I find out that you didn't have to get wounded. You chose to. Mm. I said, yes, I did, sweetheart. I chose because I couldn't live with myself. And I don't think you could live with me if I had left Quezon and all my team was wounded. So Team Broadmind is special. And they deserve to have a good leader. And I stayed with them because I couldn't leave them. Yeah. And eventually, uh, because of my PTSD and a lot of things, we decided to get a divorce. Wow. But she took me back. Yeah. When I come home from Europe, I apologized to her. We had a, we had a child home with special needs, and I couldn't leave my son. So I called her from Scotland somewhere. We'd gone in. I bought a bunch of Scottish whiskey, brought it home. <laughs> Didn't drink it and gave it away. But I told Dottie I was sorry. I always loved her. I told her that I had requested orders to go to Hawaii and asked her would she go with me. Mm. She said, I'll go with you. Anywhere on this earth. I never stopped loving you. I was angry with you, but I never stopped loving you. And we got to Hawaii. I spent two days there as a director of the military school there. Then when the president came, things went bad, and I got relieved of duty and sent home after two years. And I got home on Christmas Eve, 1972. Mm -hmm. uh, lived in a hotel. But after all of the bad things that happened, she wouldn't leave me. We got to Hawaii, and they threatened to kill her and my son. And that's when I got relieved. They sent me home because they thought had I gotten killed, it would have would have been a really a racial thing. Wow. It's a threat coming down in your life because of race? Yeah. Wow. And I was a, a captain at that time. The colonel ordered me to get my wife ready. He was going to have a plane come pick her up and take her to another island. And I said, sir, I don't think she'd want to go. So I went home and told Dottie. I said, hey, sweetheart, listen. A lot of things happening, which I can't really explain myself. But, you know, the president was here. A lot of things happened in conjunction with that. She knew some of the Secret Service guys. They used to come to my house uh, to meet my wife and my, my baby. Yeah. When I went and told her, the general would like for you to go to safety because uh, it would be a threat to you. And she said, you know, sweetheart, 
when we decided to get a divorce way back when, I didn't know if I'd ever see you again. And when we come back together, we decided we're going to be together until our dying day. Mm. Just, I'm not going anywhere. Wow. It was one of the bravest things I'd ever heard. She said, they come for us. We're going to be here together. I'm not leaving. Wow. I'm not leaving you. Wow. And I went back and told my general, said, my wife won't leave. But Colonel Schufert was the chief of staff. And I wrote this letter resigning my commission. I uh, said, well, I don't want to insult the Marine Corps, but my wife is not going to leave. And uh, if one hair is harmed off the head of my wife or my child, odds are off. I'll hunt down whoever the perpetrators are, and I'll kill every one of them. Mm. And the colonel didn't accept my letter. He put it in his drawer. And he says, you know, I know about that Hong Kong stuff. You know, you can't talk to me this way. I'm your commanding general. I said, I just remind, general, I just resigned. And we went through this thing, and the Colonel Schufert came and got me, took me out to the water fountain to calm me down. And uh, they decided that if Daddy wasn't going to leave, they better protect us. So they had Secret Service living in my house wow. with me. Wow. And they had cars parked along my street. And when my wife took my son to school, they had a car in front of her and a car behind her. Wow. And one morning, she was a patriot. When colors went up, she got out of the car to honor, got out of our car to honor colors. And all of the Secret Service guys, which was following her, when she got out of the car, they all rushed the car to see if anything was wrong. <laughs> wow. It was a lot of craziness. And one night, a cat got into my trash can, and all of these guys come running up to my house with guns drawn. And the guys inside had guns drawn. I had come out and said, whoa, fellas, it's all right. Cat got the trash can. We had orders to protect you. You okay? Yes, we're okay. <laughs> but, but eventually I took the orders home to, to Quantico. We stayed together until she closed her eyes at 2.21 in the afternoon on June 28th, 2009. I took a wedding ring off, put it in my pocket. I kissed her goodbye. Wow. And I told her I'd see her in heaven. Yeah. But back to the, which I never got around to. Yeah, the capers. <laughs> yeah, I was wrapped up in the story myself. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get back around to this. <laughs> well, Dottie was a part of it. She and I. She's a big part. Yeah. yeah we and I, she and I formed this group because I was in the hospital. I told the guys that when I got out, I'd come back to visit them. Mm. And, uh, you know, we had 500 patrons, uh, uh, patients in Bethesda. And so I had gotten to know them all. I was an officer, and when I was able to get my wheelchair, I'd wheel to all of the, uh, the wards, and uh, I sit there with them at night and hold their hands, and, and I could hear them saying, uh, incoming, incoming. These are young guys, and a lot of them had lost legs and arms, and they had no parents there, nobody there, so I'd wheel from rack to rack, and I sit there with them, and it's going to be okay, you know? And I, you know, as long as I could, and I'd go from rack to rack in my wheelchair, and I would talk to him and tell him it's going to be okay. I'm Lieutenant Capes from Recon. You're Recon? Yeah, I'm Recon. I got you. I got you. You're going to be okay. And then when I got out, I formed this group called Capers and Company. I did get around to it. Capers and Company. And we recruited all these entertainers, Army guys at 11th Cavalry at Fort Meade, Maryland, which was an Army base. And they agreed to help me form this, this USO group. I had some young ladies who could sing and 
groups and guys who could dance and all of that. And we, the Army gave us an old service club. And we used to practice in it. It gave me two old buses. Renko didn't have anything to give me. But the Army gave me a lot of stuff. <laughs> they gave me a so lot like of the stuff. The Army was always giving you equipment. I'm telling you, I have a lot of good memories about the Army. Yeah. And they gave me a service club that we could practice in. And then we would go and do these shows. And we went to Bethesda. All of my groups had gotten together. We had the Marine Corps Band there. We had some Army. Well, a lot of the Army guys were performers. They were singers and dancers. And they just caught on to this idea. We had 50 people in Capers and Company. And my wife was the first lady, and she'd help the young ladies. And I was out there, uh, you know, uh, being the MC. Wow. I was, I sang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you sang. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I heard you singing a little earlier with well, the I, Irish thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was out there at the master of ceremonies, and we had a lot of different groups out there. I would I would say something that is the... Uh, Fifth Marines here. And, ah, fifth Marines. Third Marines. <laughs> ah, and uh, I would try to say something funny. Then I would bring uh, my singers and dancers out, some pretty girls. And boy, the guys would love that. One young man was in a, they brought him down to see the show. He was a double amputee. And he was on this gurney. this rack. Wow. And when they played the, the Star Spangled Banner, and they played the Marine Corps hymn, and he tried to stand up. Forgot he had no legs, and he almost fell off the gurney, and everybody reached for him. Dry, wasn't a dry in a place. Wow. It was hard for me to emcee that show. The troops loved it. I went back again. It was so successful. We went to Walter Reed for the soldiers, and wow. then we had so many shows, the prisons called us. <laughs> we went into Jessup Cut Prison in wow. Maryland. We did the whole show out there. But the funny thing about that, my wife had the ladies on another bus, and I took some of the singers with me on one bus, two old army buses that they gave to us. So I got there first. My wife's bus broke down. Oh. So she called and said, sweetheart, I can't make it. Uh, you know, the bus broke down. She said, you have to start the show. So I took whatever singers and dancers I had. I couldn't say much funny about the, about the prison. <laughs> But this was a maximum security prison. Oh wow! So they had, they had let the warden had let the guys come out for a certain period of time. Mm. But he said, "Now you can't keep these guys out too long. Got to put them back in their cells." Yeah. Took them out of their cells and brought them down there, and I got them all there. So I was trying to stall the guys. I started singing, you know. Oh man, I sang a couple of songs, and then the guys start saying, "Hey, where's the girls?" <laughs> and I sang another song. <laughs> And this then, sounds tougher than any recon well, mission. Well, <laughs> I'm telling you, I was, I was trying to, I was looking back and saying, hey, my wife showed up yet? <laughs> and uh, wow. it, it was amazing. And finally, I was never so glad to see her in my life. She come rolling in yeah. and they start getting everything set up and all the guys, hey, yeah, yeah, great show. Wow. Great show. As a matter of fact, a couple of the prisoners, when they got out, they come and see me. Mm. As a matter of fact, wow. one of the guys from Bethesda, I was in my office at Fort Meade, Maryland, come out of the office and walk into the parking lot. And he was out there standing at parade rest. And I said, uh, can I help you? He said, I'm waiting for Lieutenant Capers. So I'm Lieutenant Capers. He said, yes, sir, I know. So I just got discharged from the hospital. And I was one of the patients that you brought the show in to see. Wow. And I'm on my way home now, much better now. And I wanted to thank you. 
I want to wait until you come out. I was almost in tears. Wow. I said, son, you didn't have to wait for me. I know forget you guys. So I just want you to know that we all appreciate what you did. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm on my way home now. He gave me a good handshake and thanked me again. And he gave me a salute, went off. The Capers and Company, we did so much good work. We played wherever we could play. Whenever you wanted a, a band, we played patriotic songs. Mm-hmm. There was that era, in spite of the war, we want to cheer these guys up. You know, it's interesting. Earlier you were saying that you wanted to put some good back into the world because you've done yeah. enough bad. But yeah. sounds like you've done some good, too. <laughs> and with your wife. Yeah, I was being haunted Yeah, a little bit by the demons. They came home, but I was trying to. My wife and I were healing together. Did you feel like that healed a lot of your marriage? Yeah, you guys I, doing that together? I think so. Yeah. My son was blind in special needs. He went to the Maryland School for Blind, for the Blind. He was a resident student, and he only came home on the weekends. Mm. He spent the whole week out there. He learned to live on him, by himself, make his bed up. He had tutors there. He learned to read Braille, learned to play music. She and I had to find something for us to do. So I was a martial artist. Mm. You know, I was a third-degree black belt in karate and all this other stuff. It was something for me to do. Yeah. I can't hardly move my legs these days, but... Uh, I could do all these great things, uh, recuperating from the hospital, learning all over again. So the Army used to bring their clothes in, and she would sew their patches on for them, sew their uniforms for them. The Army gave her those sewing machines, and they would come over and sit, and she would talk with them. Uh, These were young guys, and she became the mother of everybody. And they all loved her. They gave us something. I was teaching, teaching martial arts. They gave me some old mats, and I was putting them all through the katas and martial arts stuff, bouncing the kids around. It helped me get back in shape. And a lot of the, the guys I taught, you know, they went on and became very good at it. Wow. I, I was teaching them the basics. Uh, but Dottie and I sat there at night and uh, worked with those guys, and we were putting our lives back together. Mm. And we were also showing other military people, you can keep your marriage together, but you've got to give in spite of hardships. And we had some hardships. Yeah. Raised a child who died in my arms. He died of appendicitis in a naval hospital. Died in my arms. I couldn't save him. And that's when the demons come home. Mm. I felt guilty because I couldn't save him. Just like I felt guilty when my wife died of cancer. I was torn. Some anger came back. I knew I wasn't a bad person, but I want to kill those who are responsible for killing my child. Mm. I prayed. I was holding my son. I asked God to take me, but don't take my only child. Mm. And my son closed his eyes, and, and God took him home. You know, I used to wonder about that because he was our only child, and I used to wonder if something happens to mom and dad, who would take care of our son? Would he ever be cold? Would he ever be hungry? Brutalized? in this cold world. But when I prayed and asked who would take care of my my child, God said, hush your mouth. Hush your mouth. I'll take care of your son. I am God. And when my child died, he was in my arms. He'll never be cold. Mm. He'll never be hungry. He's there now with his mother. Mm. They're together. Mom and her son and dad will join them eventually. But I don't have to worry about my wife having cancer now. You know, yeah. I don't have to worry about those morphine machines. I don't have to worry about those painful nights. 
because God has cured her, mm -hmm. just like he has given my son sight. He can play basketball now, whatever he wants to do. Yeah. And one day he'll call me home. Yeah. One day he'll call me home. But now my mission is to do some good on this earth while he's giving me some time. Yeah, absolutely. We're the only ones left with that pain. Yeah, yeah, true. They're pain-free. Very true. Uh, what was the situation like? Uh, you know, I ask a lot of the Vietnam guys this, obviously, but what was the situation like for you when when you came back as far as the nation and the feeling in our country? What was that like for you? Well, the nation was kind to me because I demanded it, but there were people who just stepped up for no reason, except they knew what was right, what was wrong. As a commanding officer of recon, Secretary of the Navy called me to the Pentagon to talk to me. And I, I left the secretary's office and the general who was escorting me, I went to, I'm not sure it was the officer's club at Fort Belvoir. When I went in there, the, the major D stopped me and said, uh, you have to have a tie on. I need to see your ID card. And there were people going in with no ties on and they didn't check the ID cards. Hmm. I guess because I was African-American. Yeah. That he just wanted to make sure I was an officer. Hmm. And I told him I was not aware that you needed a tie to get in. And one gentleman just to the left of me took off his tie and took it up and threw it at the maitre d'. This man says he's a Marine officer. I believe he's a Marine officer. If he doesn't have a tie, you take mine. But there's no reason to stop him. Wow. You don't stop this man from going in and having a meal. And I just, I didn't know the guy. Wow. But that was just humanity. Yeah. Being humanity. Right. You know, so I went through those type of things. I wanted to prove that I was an officer. As a matter of fact, before I went to see the Secretary of the Navy, I went to headquarters Marine Corps to pick up a Brigadier General who was going to drive me over there to the Pentagon. Uh, I never spent much time in the Pentagon. As a matter of fact, I'd never been there, but I never spent much time at headquarters Marine Corps. But I had my executive officer with me who was uh, came with me, and we were in the general's office waiting for his arrival. And my executive officer was standing over to my left. I was standing in full uniform at the door waiting for him to come in and present myself. The general walked in, walked by me, and walked over to my executive officer, who was a captain with captain's bars on, mm. and said, hello, Major Capers. It's good to have you back in the country. I heard about the good work you've been doing. Now, this is the white guy, my executive officer. I'm a major black guy. He didn't process that. He wow. walked by me, assuming that the white guy was in command. Wow. And then when my captain told him, sir, that's Major Capers there, you just walked by. He looked over and said, oh, so you're the famous Major Capers. It's so good to have you in D.C. I've heard so much. I said, sir, we have to go. I don't. I didn't really care to talk to him. Mm, yeah. Didn't really care to talk to him. Said, we, we need to move. He said, oh, well, I'm so sorry I didn't recognize you. Uh, you know, I've been busy all day. I, I didn't want to hear it then. Yeah. I was angry, but I didn't. I needed to control myself. Right. This guy has insulted me. After all the blood I'd lost for this country, well, he put us in a blackout limousine, took me to the Pentagon and the Secretary of the Navy. They took me in. He was so kind. Very nice young man. And, oh, you were Major Capers. I'm so glad. You could find time to come and see me. And uh, he asked me to sit down, and he told his aide to give the major, I had my XO with me too, to give the major a cup of coffee. He said, I need to make my report. And I assume he was going to talk to the president because he wanted all of us to be able to do what the Israelis did 
when they raided Entebbe. Mm, okay. Marines had our special ops group, the Navy SEAL, everybody had their special ops group. But we were top of the list. Because mm. I'd been around 20 years. Yeah. And uh, he chose me to do to go first. Whatever we needed to have done, I want you to be ready to go and get it done. Wow. And I said something, bravado, uh, there's nothing we can't do, sir, or something like that. So oh, I like the way you sound. <laughs> And uh, we spent the afternoon together, and he told me about some things around the world he wanted me to prepare for. We still had the SEALs coming along, but they had some problems uh, early on. Uh, but they, they come around. They did real good. And so did the Deltas. You know, the Deltas, the guys that went into this thing. And after I retired, the Deltas went into Iran and had a little issue there. Right. Uh, loss of aircraft, and they didn't make the final trip. Yeah. A lot of stories. I knew a lot of those guys. I knew a lot of the Delta guys. A lot of them would come to me mm. for advice and counsel. Keep in mind, I was a Vietnam vet and been through a lot. And I had a couple of CIA guys in my company with me. Mm. And I put them through training when they were there. Uh, they used to come to my house on the weekend. I love the CIA guys. They were young guys. A lot of them didn't have a lot of trigger time, but, right. you know, they were good at what they did. Yeah. You know, So I was enjoying the tour and until I decided that I was done. Yeah. I couldn't do it anymore, so I retired. Hmm. When was that? 1978, I retired. 1978. Mm -hmm. You ready to be done? To be no. finished? No. No, I came home one day, and my wife was crying, and my son had been bullied. He spit on him. He wasn't hurt bad, but he depended on dad. He depended on dad, hmm. and I wasn't there to protect him. And at the time, I was told I was going to be deep selected for lieutenant colonel. But I didn't have a lot of time as an officer, 10 years as an enlisted man. So I didn't have enough time as an officer. So they were going to give me a deep selection. But they wanted me to go to Okinawa for two years. Mm. Then they're going to make me a lieutenant colonel. And I said, no, I can't do this. I can't leave my wife and son again. And they said, well, you know, you're going to be one of my bright stars and you'll probably get a regiment one day. And I said, I appreciate that, but uh, I can't leave my wife and my son. I never left him again until he died in my arms. Wow. I had all those years with him. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. All of us carried weapons though because we were could be called out any minute. You know, we were on, on alert. Right. In special operations. You're always ready to go. Yeah. My wife understood that. Yeah. And when I saw my son like that, I started to drive down to the school. Still armed. Was going down to the school that brutalized my son. And there was a light there. I stopped for the red light, was waiting for it to turn green because I was going to turn right and go right to that school and don't know what I've done when I've got there, but I was angry. Hmm. That light never changed. Oh, wow. It never went green. Wow. Right there. Wow. I looked at it and I waited and I waited and it never turned green. I turned around and went back home. Wow. It was a signal. Uh. God wouldn't let that light change. Because he didn't know what I would do when I got there. Yeah. The light, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that light, but it, it never was turned green. Moment. <laughs> wow. God can do amazing things. He can, yeah. As, as you got out of the core, mm -hmm. going back to Vietnam, and then as you've seen, you know, years go by now mm -hmm. with dealing with racial, racial tension mm -hmm. and all the things you've dealt with, what do you think about things nowadays and how, and, and kind of, you know, this is kind of an appropriate timing for this mm -hmm. podcast with all that's going on right mm -hmm. now. What do you think about the way that our country's going right now? Well, I got thoughts on it. Uh, 
obviously anybody now would have thoughts on it. It's all over the news. And, <laughs> and you see what the policemen. I think people's dogs did. have feelings about it. Right yeah. Now. Like everybody's got. And even cats. And cats got feelings. Yeah. I heard the cats. <laughs> I saw the cats protesting the other day. All lined up. They, they were all in line. Every neighborhood cat was even together. Even protesting. <laughs> <laughs> they were, you know, all of us American citizens uh, have thoughts about this. You know, it's a tragic situation. Not only for the young man who died, but for the country who now suffers because of that. And for the policeman who committed this act, I hope he has some grievances. I hope he has thinking about it in retrospect. It's sad for him, too, because he should have known better. But if he goes to prison, he'll die in prison. Uh, Policemen don't last very long in prison. Right. I was talking to a friend the other night, asked me the same thing. I don't have mixed feelings. But I know what my father said when we had riots in Baltimore. He said, you never should break into any of those businesses. You never take anything there that don't belong to you. When welfare come along, my father would, when he got laid off from his job, he wouldn't accept what we call welfare. You could go down and then you could get a check and you could buy certain things, whatever. Wouldn't do that. He worked in a steel mill for years and break it into a business no. And taking things that don't belong to you, no. Uh, I saw those kids the other night break into a very um, expensive store in Santa Monica. I lived in Santa Monica for a long time after my wife passed. Beautiful place. Yeah. I love Third Street Promenade. Mm-hmm. And I used to walk down every day and cry my eyes out thinking about my wife and my son. Wow. I spent some awesome time down there too in that yeah. same area yeah that was beautiful i love it but to see the way the torn down and kids running out running out with boxes of shoes and things that's not who we are it happened we have to accept that my thought is do we deserve this type of uh, uh riots in the street the first man to die in boston was a man named christmas addicts he was a black man he was shot by the british mm. They were protesting. So that's part of our history. One of the big massacres was when the soldiers from World War I, who was promised bonuses, and they didn't get them. So they rioted in Washington, D.C. MacArthur was in charge of the military force that shot hundreds of them. Wow. Did not know that. MacArthur was a brigadier general. But now they wanted what they thought was due. With respect to African-Americans, of course, I've thought a lot about this. I taught African-American history for a long time. I'm quite versed in a lot of that. Some of it I just forgot because of aging a little bit. My memory is not as good as it used to be. But when you look at us as a people, we're the only people that was prosecuted based on one factor, the color of our skin. When we come here as slaves in 1620 and through the years, we were never allowed to vote until a certain time. We couldn't own property. We couldn't marry. And you couldn't buy your freedom. Mm. The Romans allowed their slaves to buy their freedom. So there's a lot of inconsistencies here when you talk about, you know, slavery and those types of things. And, of course, I've studied history and I've watched it grow and we got more freedoms. And Carriot Tubman was the one who started the, uh, the Underground Railroad which I suspect that the folks who got me to Maryland and my father to Maryland probably had something to do with something similar because my father had no car. We had no car. We got there some kind of way. Yeah. But 
After your father had been on the chain gang, right, yeah. been in trouble. Yeah. Some kind of way we got reunited, and we were reunited, or reunited, and when my father died, my mother was still alive, and one day I was there visiting her, and she asked me, where's the old man? He was dead at that time. Mm. I said, Mom, uh, he's gone fishing. She said, fishing? I was just trying to say something to her. I didn't want to tell her that he was gone. Right. She smiled and said, he's not going to catch anything anyway. And she went back to sleep. Wow. Wow. She closed eyes and I buried her. And then my brother, and both my brothers, my sister, my aunts and uncles. Wow. But my father told me, you take care of the family. Mm. I did that. Yeah. The last one. I'm the last one now. Wow. I'm the last capers, uh, you know, from that generation. You carried out his mission I well. I his wishes. Yeah. Wow. I have no one that, except all of my adopted family. They'll ensure that I get to Arlington. My wife and my son are waiting there for me. I got a place to go. Get some amazing people surrounding you too. Yeah, they'll, Lots they'll, of sons and daughters. They'll make sure I get there. They'll be there with me. Yeah. They'll stand with me. Yes, absolutely. And I know that. What do you What do you want people to, you know, how do you want people to remember Major James Capers? Oh my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like we're going to have to do another part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you, what do you, I know that's a broad question. I've, I, I address this question of legacy all the time mm, yeah, with this work. When I interview a lot of the uh, actors and important people in the world, how do you want to be remembered? And everybody has a different opinion on how they want to be remembered. You know, guys like me don't really matter in, in the great scheme of things. Uh, I'll know, disagree with you, sir, but no. Well, you, you, I'm sure you would, <laughs> but they don't remember the, a Roman soldier. Or I'm, I'm just a soldier that had some luck along the way. I've had a lot of misfortunes. I've heard some nice things said about me. I've heard some not so nice things said about me. A lot of guys like me had mattered since the days of Caesar. You know, why would the world matter about a guy like me. I come along at this time. There are people who said I I don't exist. Wow. Really? You know, the first James Capers Jr. was born and he died. I was the last child to be born in the Capers family. They made they named me James Capers Jr. Uh, I have no birth certificate. Wow. When they researched me, they said I was there's no record of my being born. Wow. They gave a statement there is no James Caper Jr. born in 1937. Mm. So, obviously, it begs the question, how did I get a top-secret clearance? Because the FBI went to my neighbors and when we were in Baltimore and to verify how old it, they thought I was, and they gave me a top-secret clearance. Mm. But I don't have a birth certificate, so therefore, there's speculation that something happened to this last child. When I was taken away by whoever took me away, a lot of speculations, a lot of spirituality, mm. that he was brought here for a reason. And when I went back to Bishopville, South Carolina, we were erecting a statue for me uh, on my birthday of this year. They having a holiday for me. Uh, and the governor's coming. And I'll be there too. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I got to photograph it for well, your project. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll be good. Yeah. The thing is, there's... There's a lot of superstitions in the South that I was destined to come back. And there's something that they waited all those years for me to come home. And I did come home. I had never been back to Bishopville until mm. last year. And maybe I was kept alive to come back home to do something because I shouldn't be here. There's no record of my being born. 
when I went back, they offered me a home. The whole town turned out and gave me a big hug. They had signs out, welcome back, major capers, as if they knew I was coming back. Wow. I was happy to be home. I had a feeling when I went there and I spoke for the crowd that night, black and white, sitting together. Now, when back in those days, I couldn't get a drink of water in a white fountain. Wow. And I remember working in the field. So something happened. But I think that God has a hand a hand in this. Mm. I really believe that God has kept me alive because I really can't explain how the hell I, pardon my language, but I, mm. how I got hit so many times and lived. Yeah. Uh, I, I bled so much that I couldn't hardly stand up. But I survived. Survived so many battles. And so saw so many good men die. But I'm alive. And it wouldn't have happened without God. And when I tell this story, I sort of digress to God because I am a Christian and I do believe that had it not been for my faith in God, even though my God, God my son was called away, but Jesus Christ suffered. Did. God gave his only son. But I believe in God. And even though I, I'm alone, I live by myself. I'm not alone because I say I sit alone, but I'm not alone because God is with me. Yes. He's always been with me. Always with you. We can all take comfort in that. Yeah. Uh, all you're right. So I wanted to address one more thing mm -hmm. before we go. I wanted sure. to talk about the uh, film. Mm -hmm. You got a film. It's going to come out. Ashley Casado produced it, right? What, what does that film mean to you? I know they, they worked really hard on that. How, how was that process? Well, when I, when I got to California, remember, I had lost my wife and my son. I'd, been, I'd buried my wife up in uh, Arlington, come home to an empty house, and I was hurt, confused in a way. What do I do now? Where do I go? And my first tour of duty was in California. My wife and I went to California, lived in a little small place. It wasn't big as this room. Wow. Had a wonderful life. We loved each other so much. I still write to my wife. I wrote to a letter the other day. I can't mail it, but I write to her and I tell her what I'm doing. I'll tell her tomorrow about this interview. Mm -hmm. She won't know what podcast is, <laughs> but she may know. I don't know. Up in heaven. She won't know now. Yeah. <laughs> She's in heaven. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are no secrets in heaven. No secrets. I write to her and I'll tell her a young man came by and wanted to document our lives. And, mm -hmm. and I'll make sure that she knows I'm still on the path. I'm still heading towards her. Yeah. I'm heading that way. But uh, the documentary, when I got to California, a young lady met me at the airport with her father. Pretty young lady, Ashley Cosado, young actress. She bounced up and said, hi, I'm Ashley. Her dad was there with her and Carl mm -hmm. did a real good imitation of the Godfather. <laughs> we lost him a few years ago. Oh, wow. So I'm not a patriot of the family. Uh -huh. Ashley's brother, her mother, they write to me all the time. I talk to them all the time. Ashley, they adopted me. She was a good kid. She would take me to the ball games, and she went to the Marine Corps ball with me as my daughter. She's a caper's daughter. She has come in, and there's a major with his daughter. She looks nothing like me. I can't <laughs> get away. But that's the way it is. And she stood right here a few years ago and said, I'm a caper's daughter. <laughs> she went with, with me when Destiny gave her speech up in Washington. Wow. She was sitting with me. And we eventually come around to the documentary. Now I understand they may try to produce a feature-length film. Mm, okay. Ashley has written a script for it, but I don't know where that is right about now. Found an apartment, and I stayed there for a couple of years until I got sick and almost died. Oh, wow. That's when Yerman comes to see. He was in Arizona, so I called him. And he drove all night long to come to the hospital and was standing by my side the next morning. 
Wow. We're friends. He defends you. I've seen he, it. Yeah. <laughs> but Ash, Ashley was there. Mother was there. They all come to see me. Then I wasn't doing too well, so they medevaced me from uh, Santa Monica to San Diego. Mm. And they figured out what was killing me. And uh, the Army, uh, I'm sorry, the Navy, the Navy doctors got together with the doctors up in uh, Santa Monica at the VA, and they uh, figured it all out. And I survived after several operations. Then my general came and got me, young man, which I had known when he was a young man. Instead of them putting me at a nursing home, he took me to his home. I went to live with him. Okay. And uh, he became my son. He retired from the Marine Corps as a three-star general. Wow. Yeah, you've I mean, got a lot of important sons and daughters. Well, they, you know, been, they, we run across each other, and <laughs> I survived. I had to learn to walk again. Uh, I could only walk maybe ten feet. Wow, he this hired, time again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I almost died in that. You know, I was, wasn't doing too well. Yeah, he said, "No, no nursing home. You come live with me. As long as I've got a home, you've got a home." Created a bed for me down in his home. He fed me breakfast every morning before he went to work. Keep in mind, he was commanding officer of the 1st Marine Division. Wow. And we were still at war. And uh, he took care of me. And uh, when I was able to, uh, he hired a nurse, nurses to take care of me during the day. They came and sat with me. I had two things, a picture of my wife and my son. And I, and I didn't know where I was, really. Didn't know if I was in a hospital or in combat or what. A lot of medication. And eventually, uh, they started taking me for a short walk. I was able to stand up. I says, no, I'm not dying here. God has got too much work for me to do. Mm. He's going to let me out of this hospital. I'll go home. So after almost four years in California, I was well enough to, to come home. And Bill and my other son picked me up at the airport and brought me home. I hadn't been home in a long time. I looked around. This was a strange place to me. Mm. I never thought I'd see it again. Yeah. place that my wife built from the ground up, built from the ground up. Wow. And, but I was home again, by myself again uh, it was good. It was good to be home, but I was lonely. Gary should be here. I should hear him playing the piano. Yeah. Dottie should be saying, hey, dinner's ready. I miss those small things. Singing, the happiness in this home, the smell of food cooking, my son laughing, or me doing silly things. If you ask me, am I happy? I'm happy that my wife and my son are no longer in pain. I'm happy that they're in heaven. I'm happy that God is sitting beside me and helping me do this podcast. And I will pray that you will be successful. I'll pray that your trip back home is uneventful and he will guide your hand and your eyes to synchronize mm -hmm. this project and make you be as happy as I was. Thank you. On my way over here, I was praying and I was praying at home last night. Every time, especially when I'm with the older gentlemen, I always pray really hard that I show their life yeah. the way that it needs to be shown because you guys have been through so much and you've been through so much. Yeah. And so for me, you know, people always ask me, what's the end product look like? Is it ever yeah. as great as you want it to be? Yeah. And I say, I pray about it, mm -hmm. but it can never be good enough for the sacrifice that those guys made. So I truly believe that every time okay. that one comes out, I'll have, you know, I, I did one on Iwo Jima guy and he mm -hmm. made books for his family. He was yeah. so proud of it. But I did not feel, I still felt like I could have done better for him. And so I always feel like I can do better because you guys are so incredible that your life is not, to me, even completely coverable. But it makes sense because God made your life as an individual so special that there's no way to tell that story 100% correctly. Yeah. 
So we just do our best job. Well, you've done a good job with me, and I'm happy with your project and uh, always feel welcome to come see the old man. Like I said, I'm <laughs> not living by myself because God is, is here with me. Yes, sir. But you're always welcome here. And well, I know I now know the coolest guy in North Carolina by far. So. <laughs> and that says a lot because I know some great North Carolina, yeah. some Green Berets, yeah. some Marsoc guys, yeah. some recon, but none is none none as cool as you. Well, thank so, you so much, son. Yeah. I appreciate it. It means a lot. Yeah. And I wish you well. And uh on my way now to working with my foundation after my son passed away, I started a foundation to help those who are a little less fortunate. Ike, who was here today, he's the CEO of it. We're working to feed, you know, the country's having a hard time now. So we had an opportunity to feed some homeless people recently and prepare some food for them. We gave a donation to my Moffitt Point Association. Okay. Now we're going to do a lot of good work. Uh, Ashley and her folks in California, they know about the Capers Foundation. As we grow and, beco- and become more advertised, I think there'll be a lot of people attracted to what we want to do. Uh, when the documentary comes out, when they read the book, mm-hmm. they'll know that uh, I wasn't such a bad guy. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm not trying to buy my way into heaven, yeah. but I need to see my wife and my son again. <laughs> yeah. And so it takes doing these kind of things. And I wasn't so good, good person doing the years you were talking about, mm. but uh, I meant well. I served my country. I'm, I don't apologize for that. And you shouldn't. We're appreciative. Yeah. You know, we always say welcome home to the Vietnam guys. Yeah. Yeah. But to to us, you're you are true heroes. Mm. And you know, I was talking about that the other day with the global war on terror us guys respect you guys so much and we hate to see the way you were treated but you truly cleared Mm -hmm. the path for us to be treated so well you know and and we're appreciative of that so when i came home son uh we'd gone from from fubai to fulak to da nang to japan to alaska to virginia when we got off the plane in virginia i understand four guys had died on the way home i didn't they weren't my guys but when they took my stretcher off the aircraft, laid it on the tarmac, it was cold. And I was lying there waiting for a ride to the hospital. And somebody walked out of the darkness, stood over me, and pissed on me. Oh, wow. That was my welcome home. Oh, my God. Now, I laid there. I wait for someone to pick up my stretcher, put me in an ambulance, and an ambulance take me to Bethesda. Demons came home then. I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. I thought I had done a pretty good job. I left a blind child and a young wife at home to go fight for my country that I believe in and love so much. But now I come home, a broken young man, and that was my welcome home. I lay there broken, but not broken in spirit. Well, I, I just wanted to say, Major Capers, thank you for sharing those stories. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, for those of you listening, you know, we're, we'll talk plenty about Major Capers Foundation. We're thankful for the work. You know, most of all, don't forget, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at project underscore veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.